I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, to Psalm chapter 72 for our Old Testament scripture reading. Here we have uh, the only psalm uh, in scripture attributed to that of Solomon. Here we find a psalm that gives us a picture of the kingdom of the Messiah and tells us of those who benefit from his reign even, and perhaps especially, that of the poor. Psalm 72 of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the moon grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish. And peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheva and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor, and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and he saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live, and the gold of Shiva be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame to continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him on all nations, call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Now, turning with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We'll read the first three verses and give attention this morning to the first of these eight Beatitudes. These eight blessings that Christ pronounce, that Christ pronounces upon his people. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 1, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Let's go before the throne of grace as we pray, asking that the Lord would open our eyes to understand what he means. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, 
How deep are the treasures that are found in the words of our Savior? And we pray that this morning you would give us wisdom, illuminate the eyes of our hearts to see, open our ears to hear those wonderful things found in your word that we might have great confidence in Christ our King who blesses us in all things. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Remember a number of years ago, uh, me and my mom were driving up from Florida to North Carolina to visit my grandparents. It was late at night, we were the only ones on the road, and of course I had not been paying attention to the gas tank. I remember looking down, and only really looking down as uh, I hear the, the, the ding of the gas light come on, and I think, oh no, we're running a little low on gas. And I thought, well, no big deal, we will go ahead and just pull off and get gas at the next exit. Well, the next exit comes, and there doesn't actually happen to be anything at that exit, So we keep driving, next exit comes, no gas station, another exit, and then this long stretch of nothing. And to to be honest with you, I I can't tell you how many times I've driven to my grandparents, and this is the the first time I had realized how long a stretch of nothing there was uh, of no exits. It's so interesting what happens, I don't know if you've ever been in the situation where uh, your gas tank is very close on empty, how you start to clench up and you kind of grab the steering wheel tighter as if it's going to make the gas run longer. Right, you turn down the AC, even turn down the radio as if the, having a, a quieter uh, radio playing will, will, will uh, uh, make you drive a little bit further. And you know, Eventually we found uh, gas and, and we were saved, but the stress begins to rise. Perhaps you've experienced it, maybe not, but it, uh, perhaps you know what it's like uh, to feel like you're running on fumes uh, in other ways. Perhaps you have that similar feeling that happens when the bills begin to pile up, or as uh, so many of us know right now, when uh, we have to render Caesar his due tomorrow night, uh, uh, once a year when the tax man comes, and you're wondering how to make ends meet. It's not perhaps a a great feeling. It wears you down. It makes you realize how much help you need, and I think it really cuts against the grain, particularly of Americans who are built so much on self-sufficiency and independence. I don't need anybody. Uh, And yet we are brought to these particular points in our life where uh, the illusion is shattered and we realize that we do need outside help. Well, the same is true for spiritual poverty. Perhaps, even as you come this morning, you don't perhaps feel too spiritual. How many times do you uh, roll out of bed or are caught in traffic and by the time you get out of traffic, you do not feel much like a Christian? Perhaps, spiritually speaking, you don't feel like you have any gas in the tank. You look around and you see everybody else living large and in charge, claiming to have their best life now, and you can barely keep yourself together. Might I suggest to you this morning that if this describes you, if you feel spiritually bankrupt, I have good news for you, because Jesus calls you blessed. It's a rather odd statement. How does this feel like a blessing? How is this a blessing? But Jesus says, for those who are poor in spirit, to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. Three things I'd like us to consider this morning as we give attention to this very simple statement that Jesus gives. Just one sentence. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'd like us to consider three things. First, we have to consider the identity of the poor. 
Who is it that Jesus is referring to? And secondly, I'd like us to consider the blessing of the poor. And then finally, I'd like us to consider the blessing of the kingdom. There are, in fact, two distinct blessings that we find here. The blessing of the poor and the blessing of the kingdom. So first, let's consider the identity of the poor as seen here in verse 3. Uh, again, we have to put this in this particular context. We have to recognize what it is that Jesus has been doing here in his ministry, going from town to town, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Again, you know, this is a day and age where the kids didn't have YouTube or even sermon audio. It's not like there's word that spreads and says, hey, did you, did you see Jesus or hear Jesus' latest sermon uh, on uh, Channel 11 this morning? Or on the radio. No, it's, it's more than likely that the sermon that we have before us here is a sermon that Jesus will preach going from town to town to town. If you saw in, in chapter 4 and verse 17, it says that Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. In chapters 5 to 7, we're giving a, a, a representation of what this sermon Jesus has and gives as he goes from town to town. And as he opens his mouth, how interesting is it that the very first thing out of his mouth in the greatest sermon sermon that you will ever hear. It's one that comes from the lips of our Savior. He begins by saying, blessed are the poor. Before we could consider that blessing, we have to consider who it is that he means. You know, when you look at what the Bible says about wealth and poverty, you find that it says an awful lot. Of course, we don't have time to go into all of what the Bible says about it, but I think there are a few things to note as we have to take the time and slow down and consider what Jesus is saying. The first thing to notice this is Jesus is not saying that material wealth is inherently evil. You look at the rest of Scripture, you find that there are many saints who, in fact, were wealthy. You think of Abraham, David, Solomon, Jehoshaphat, and Hezekiah, all in the Old Testament are said to have been blessed with a great financial prosperity. You read the Old Testament law and the sacrificial system, and you don't find the rich being told that they have to give sacrifices because they are rich, as if being wealthy is a sin. Rather, they are called to offer sacrifices in accordance with the level of wealth they have, but not on the grounds of the fact that they have wealth. Does that make sense? There's an important distinction there. Even in the New Testament, we find wealthy believers, Joseph of Arimathea in Matthew 27, or Philemon, Lydia or Dorcas. And so we see that riches are not necessarily evil, but secondly, we have to recognize uh, that poverty is not necessarily good as well, as if there is uh, some special blessing, as if you're reading a, a Charles Dickens novel or, or, or Victor Hugo, uh, that, that there is a special blessing that immediately befalls, without qualification, all of the materially impoverished. You read the book of Proverbs, it says that material poverty is often, though not always, the price of laziness, gluttony, drunkenness, that it's the consequence of stupidity, even the fate of the cheapskate. And yet at the same time, poverty can also be the result of people being oppressed by other people. Sometimes it's somebody's fault, sometimes it's not. And so Jesus is not simply trying to make some type of economic distinction here. In fact, the Bible frequently tells us that there is a danger that stands on both sides of the ditch. You think of Augur in uh, Proverbs chapter 30, who prays to the Lord, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches. Because if I get too rich, I'm going to say, well, where's the, I'm going to say, who is the Lord? But if I'm too poor, 
and I don't have anything to eat, I'm going to ask, where is the Lord? So what we find is that regardless of our circumstances, there are temptations that could befall us in either situation. You think of Jesus' own parable of the sower where he describes both the cares of this world, in other words, not having enough, and the deceitfulness of riches, having too much, as both being threats to godliness. I think this leads us to our third consideration. The snare is not so much wealth itself, but it is the inordinate love of wealth. How easy it is to have all you need and forget the Lord. Remember what the psalmist says in Psalm 52, consider the man who would not make God his refuge, but rather he trusted in the abundance of his riches and so sought refuge in his own destruction. Psalm chapter 73, the wicked are always at ease as they increase in wealth and prosperity. And yet what we find as well is that the love of wealth is not simply restricted to the wealthy. You can have nothing in the bank and still be greedy. That's the thing is greed is not a particular vice that is restricted to one economic class. It is something that pervades all of our hearts. It doesn't matter how much money in the bank, we always, we always want more. And that is the great danger. That's why Paul does not say that money is the root of all evil, but rather that the love of, the, of money is the root of all kinds, all sorts of evil. That all those who desire to be rich, not simply all those who are rich, but all those who desire to be rich fall into a snare that plunges them into ruin and destruction. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And this is why Paul gives those instructions to those who are wealthy in the church. He tells them not to flush their bank account, but rather not to be haughty or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but rather they are to be rich in good works and generous to the needy. And that's why we see added here what Jesus says, not simply blessed are the poor, although he does actually say that in Luke chapter 6. But here, Matthew gives this qualification to help us understand what it is that Jesus is talking about. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Maybe if we can summarize it like this, being poor in spirit might include a facet of uh, kind of financial poverty. But it's much broader than that. It is much deeper than that. Think what James says in James chapter 2. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Where is Jesus getting this language? Or where is James getting this language? It seems to echo the very words here of Matthew 5, 3. That the kingdom is promised, James writes, to those who love him. And that right there is the qualification. We see here that riches are so deceptive. That's why Jesus will say elsewhere that seeing a rich man enter the kingdom, it's not impossible, but it's kind of like straining a camel through the eye of a needle. It becomes very, very difficult because riches can be so incredibly deceptive. Should I say the love of riches? So the question we have to ask ourselves, even as we consider what the Bible says about uh, prosperity and poverty, is where is it that we set our hope? And that is where the Bible hones its attention. Are you finding your security in uh, your finances or in the Lord Himself? What do you love more, your bank account or the Lord who is rich in mercy? That's a question that's relevant to all of us here, regardless of our tax 
bracket, and status. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, he's beginning to uh, turn our attention to the, the whole biblical doctrine in terms of thinking these things, that we can't simply restrict it to finances. This is not a blanketed statement contingent upon what's found in your bank account. You think of uh, Psalm 86 or Psalm 109. David, the king of Israel, perhaps the wealthiest man in all of Israel. Yet you find him praying on several occasions, what? Deliver me, O Lord, for I am poor and needy. David, how can you be poor and needy? You live in a castle. There's something that's going on here. David recognizes uh, that he has a problem that runs much deeper than his bank account. And so often we have such a superficial view of the world that all we see uh, wealth and poverty in terms of is simply a matter of economics. What Jesus is beginning to tell us is that there is a poverty that runs much deeper than our wallets. That there is a poverty that material wealth will try to cover up, but it will fail to heal. So the real question we have before us then is what does it mean when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit? Why does Jesus give this qualifying statement? I think we all understand what it means to, to undergo material poverty, but perhaps that gives us a lens through which to understand what Jesus uh, is speaking of when he speaks of spiritual poverty. When you look at the Old Testament, so often that word there for poor is translated in a number of ways in your Bibles. You translate it as afflicted, humbled, even humiliated. In the Old Testament, it can include financial poverty. Those who are under the thumb of the wealthy, uh, of wealthy individuals. But often under, undergirding it lies a spiritual component as well. I think a helpful way to see what Jesus is getting at is to contrast poverty of spirit with its opposite. What would the opposite of it be? Perhaps we could say one who is rich in spirit, perhaps proud in spirit. And that is the language that we find Scripture using as well. Consider Proverbs chapter 16. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 28, a rich man is wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has understanding will find them out. One here is reminded, perhaps, of the Pharisee in the tax collector. And how does that exhibit what it means to be proud in heart versus one who is poor in heart? One who is poor in spirit. One who says, well, Lord, I, I think I'm not like everybody else. Look at my own spiritual righteousness. Look at all that I've done for you. I fast twice a week. I give alms to the poor. Uh, I'm not like this tax collector over here. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't murdered anybody. Aren't you so happy with me, Lord? How interesting is it that the Pharisee's prayer uh, doesn't actually talk about God. The Pharisee's prayer is all about himself. And yet, on the other side of the sanctuary, you find a tax collector who won't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He's beating his breast. He understands his own poverty. He doesn't have any money in the bank, so to speak. He doesn't have any way in which to bribe God. He says, I'm, I, all I could come to you is with empty hands. 
on pleading for his mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus asked that question. Which one walks away from church that morning justified? He says, it's not the tax collector. I'm sorry, it's not the Pharisee. It is the tax collector. And he says this, because the one who exalts himself, the one who is proud in heart, will be humbled. And that one who is humble, that one who is poor and needy, will himself be exalted. With whom is God pleased? For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, Isaiah writes, the one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, but I am also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and of a contrite spirit. The one who trembles at my word. See, Jesus here is addressing a spiritual condition. It might manifest itself in material ways. It might, but not necessarily. More foundational is the spiritual uh, component that undergirds it. This is the great danger of the church in Laodicea, isn't it? Remember when Jesus, having risen from the dead, ascended on high, speaks to the church of Laodicea Laodicea, through the Apostle John. And what is it that he says? The risen Christ tells the church, You say I am rich, and I have prospered, and I need nothing. And yet you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you might be rich. Isn't this the great call uh, to worship that we even heard this morning from the book of Isaiah? Come to me, all you who are hungry, all you who are thirsty, come and buy and eat. But come buy and eat without money and without price. In other words, here we see that the Lord offers bountifully all that we need for life and for godliness. He gives it freely. Psalm 72, which speaks of the reign of the Messiah. Blessed is he who is righteousness. His righteousness extends from sea to shining sea. And he gives to the needy and to the poor all that they need. All who turn to him, all who put their trust in him. He will in no likewise cast out. The proud and the rich in spirit are those who are indifferent, smug, and self-satisfied. They are ignorant, however, to the spiritual condition that festers underneath their designer clothes. You see, now I think we're in a position to understand the blessing that Jesus is pronouncing upon those who are poor in spirit. Isn't it so interesting in the following chapter, in Matthew chapter 6, as Jesus continues this particular sermon, when he teaches us how to pray, he could have so easily said, forgive us our sins. But he teaches us to say, instead what? Forgive us our debts. He's teaching us something here. But the poverty that we all have and what it is that sin truly incurs What is poverty but deep debt? What is our greatest poverty but the debt of sin? How many people walk about thinking that God loves them because they have it all together? They they do not even recognize their own poverty. They are bereft of any right to have it all. 
probably the worst place to be in. It's the worst position to be in. The Bible tells us quite clearly there are none righteous. No, not one. Spiritually speaking, we are all morally bankrupt. And so to be able even to see your own spiritual poverty in one sense should be a blessing. It should be seen as a blessing, even though it does not feel like a blessing at the time. But we have to consider this. Who would be truly blessed? The man who says, I got nothing. I owe hundreds of thousands of dollars. I have no way to pay it off. I'm, I'm pleading before the courts for mercy. Or the guy who's in the exact same financial position and continues to live in his big mansion, and continues to, to ride high on credit card fumes, thinking that he has everything. Who is in the better position? It is the one who actually recognizes his true poverty. As he comes to the Lord, who graciously pardons us of all of our debts. Whosoever will may come. Without class, without distinction, Regardless of an ethnicity, tribe, tax bracket, all who turn to me, the Lord says, I will pardon you of your debts. But the only one who will come to the Lord is the one who recognizes that he has debts that need to be pardoned. What a blessing it is to be brought to that place who, like the tax collector, beats his breast and says, I have no spiritual resources in myself. I am dependent solely upon the alms of free grace. I am in need of a righteousness that is not my own. A righteousness that comes apart from the law. A righteousness that will clothe me. A righteousness that will pardon me of my debts. A righteousness that will cover all of my debts. See, being poor in spirit is itself a blessing. Because it shows the Spirit is at work. Is, is removing the blinders from our eyes to help us see our own situation that we are not our saviors. We cannot save ourselves. Again, these are not blessings on natural disposition. Two of his own accord is humble in spirit. None of us are here. Not of our own doing. Any humility that we have is a humility that is wrought by the Spirit and His work in our hearts. That's why Jesus says, if you're poor in spirit, if you are like that tax collector who feels like you're running on empty, like you don't have it together, then guess what? You're blessed. I know it doesn't feel that way, but you truly are because you're being brought to an end of yourself to see that there is something outside of yourself that is being offered freely to you that will supply you with all that you ever need and more than you could ever dream. There is, in fact, a poverty that makes one rich. Because we are come to know a wealth that is not earned, but a wealth that is only received. They might know that there is a treasure that the IRS cannot confiscate. Revelation chapter 2, the risen and ascended Savior speaks to the church of Smyrna. And he says to them this, even though they are under the thumb of local persecution by the government, he says, I know your tribulation and I know your poverty. But in fact, you are rich. See, it's the logic of the cross. 
that there, exi- that there exists a kingdom for the poor. Sin incurs a debt, yet to all who acknowledge their poverty, that debt is pardoned. And turning to Isaiah 61 says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He has anointed me and equipped me for this particular task. And what task is that? He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. See, in His goodness, God has provided for the poor and the needy. He's done so by giving us Christ. Christ who makes us rich beyond all measure, not by filling our pockets, but by filling our hearts with the knowledge that He loves us, not because of how good we are, but because of how good He is. That God is, in fact, goodness itself. And that all who admit their spiritual bankruptcy, there is good news that there is a kingdom of heaven that awaits you. How interesting is it that the promise is not simply for the future, but it is a promise that is given now. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs not simply shall be the kingdom of heaven, but for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Christ, to all who feel like they're running on fumes, gives you this blessing. He blesses you today. So the, it says, the kingdom of heaven is yours now. All that I have procured and secured by my death and resurrection is made yours. I was raised from the dead. First Timothy 3.16, Christ's resurrection is his justification. First Corinthians 1, Christ's resurrection is his sanctification. Romans 1.3, Christ's resurrection is his adoption. And all those benefits that Christ secured, his justification... His sanctification and His adoption are now said to be ours in Christ Jesus. Where we are said even now, Ephesians chapter 2, to be seated presently, not simply in a pew in Westminster Presbyterian Church in Corvallis, but we are now seated in the heavenlies, having been seated with Christ, united to Him, far above all principality, power, and throne, and dominion. It's not simply a future promise. Christ bankrupted Himself at the cross that we might from His poverty become the heirs of grace, that we who are poor in spirit would know that we are not poor in a state. Because God has promised those who are poor in heart, those who are humble, the Lord has come to lift up from the dust. Christ is the King of the brokenhearted. He has come to bind up our wounds. So let us look to Him that we might recognize and confess our own poverty, that we might know the riches of His righteousness. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do confess that we need You this morning. We pray that You would open our eyes to see how sin has morally bankrupted us. And we have no hope apart from salvation in Christ. Bless us, we pray, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.